Hey everyone, welcome to Founders Fireside Chat, the show where we meet with the next generation of startups and the founders behind them. Today we have a special episode where we'll be entering into the world of VC. I met with Spencer Krug, the principal at River Park Ventures, to hear about his story of building out the VC fund. I had a great time chatting with Spencer and I hope you enjoy. Hey Spencer, thanks again for coming on to the show. Can we start with a brief description of yourself and River Park Ventures? Sure, yeah. So I grew up in central Jersey, um, public school kid, which for whatever reason in our industry is, is pretty rare. Uh, I've been really entrepreneurial my whole life. I would say my first business I started was when I was 12 years old. I was a collector of jerseys and sneakers and, and sports cards. And, you know, when you're a collector, you sort of naturally have a unique advantage on finding these things and getting good deals. So it felt like the, the ultimate opportunity to figure out a way to sell them and flip them and make a quick buck. So I didn't know it at the time, but I kind of had an omni-channel approach. I was selling stuff on eBay, on Craigslist. I had set up shop at a flea market. So I had actually, you know, built a business in, in some of the buzzwords we talk about now when I was really young. Um, so fast forward, you know, started at Indiana University, uh, a raw 17-year-old kid. And I saw basically a, not a billboard, but like a flyer on the wall of my dorm for fitness supplements, a marketplace for fitness supplements. And I was a big gym rat and decided to try these guys out, ordered some product. And this guy, Russ, who was the CEO of this business, Campus Protein, showed up in his Audi, delivered me a bunch of supplements. And it was just an amazing experience. I got free samples. I got a shirt. And I was just so impressed. And immediately I said to him, you know, there's a lot of people like me that would love to stay in shape, get supplements for a good price. Let me be your sales guy. We had this immediate connection. He hired me as his first, you know, founding team sales hire and worked on that through, through college. So that was like my first real sort of soiree into, I'll call it like a real entrepreneurship, you know, the childhood experience while I made a bunch of money and it helped pay for some of my college expenses. This was like a real company registered as an LLC, C Corp, paying taxes. So a really unique experience at the time and sort of led me in many ways to where I'm at now. Um, I did a 3-2 MBA program at IU, um, graduated, spent a year and a half in, in consulting, mostly working with you know, private equity clients who were looking to make an acquisition. They'd have us come in, basically evaluate the target like a target uh, that they were looking to acquire and do some of the diligence on that business. So whether it's competitive landscape, sizing the market, similar stuff to what I'm doing now in venture capital, you know, I was doing an LEK and I sort of had this aha moment where I, I vividly remember being on the phone at like 8 PM and an associate, probably 24 your age at a private equity fund was telling our MDs at, this like global consulting firm, what to do, what work we were missing. And it was funny, like, you know, 24 year old telling 55 year old, Hey, like, this is what you guys need to do. Get it done stat. I immediately felt I wanted to be in that guy's shoes. 
So that was like a year into consulting, that aha moment that, you know, investing was probably more of my calling than consulting. So that was when I started my search into what I was going to do next. Um, interview with a few private equity shops, a few startups, and was introduced to uh, Andy Applebaum, who's founder of River Park Ventures, managing partner, um, through a mentor in my network. And we just kind of hit it off. So that, that's kind of the story background, how I got here. And, you know, in a sentence, what River Park Ventures is, we're, we're an early stage venture fund trying to find the next big thing, industry agnostic, typically, you know, seed series A. And we want to be, you know, one of the first institutional investors involved with the business um, at its sort of early growth inflection point. I think that's a good, good summary. Yeah, that's a great summary. I really appreciate that background. And I love the, uh, the story of being a young uh, pioneer with Omni channels, <laughs> <laughs> selling jerseys and sneakers. So that's great. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, I never thought of it that way, but it was cool <laughs> to, to now reflect on it. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So uh, you were saying you came to, uh, well, River Park Ventures was started in 14. And then you came on in around 2017. So could you walk us through what it was like to help build the venture uh, investing arm of River Park Capital? What did that look like in the early days? I think it makes sense to probably give a little background on what River Park Capital is, sort of separated from River Park Ventures. So River Park Capital is a multi-strategy public market investing business. I think mutual funds, a um, couple billion dollars under management, you know, team of 30 people, big office in Midtown. And Andy, who I mentioned before, who's you know serial entrepreneur in New York, had been doing angel investing you know since 2007. He wanted to form an institutional venture capital fund, set up shop, and he decided to team up with some folks he had known for many years, who ran River Park Capital, who ran you know that investment team, and they you know sort of gave him the tools and said, why don't you? start your fund within our confines at our office. You'll have access to a team of, you know, 30 plus professionals that have been covering every industry from retail to, to e-com to oil and gas to healthcare. You know, you have this, this huge setup. So why, you know, why be a solo guy in a WeWork who's trying to hire someone when you could sort of, you know, do this institutionally. So that was how we set up shop. And he had been doing investing on his own for, two, two and a half years, built a portfolio of, you know, two dozen or so brands, um, companies had been supporting those businesses, had been dealing with LP relations, you know, all that on his own, you know, with support, but on his own. And he needed someone, I think, to, to really help him sort of institutionalize the next stage of the business to you know, manage raising a second fund, to continue to source deals, to free up a lot of the time that he needed because he was doing so much on his own. So he was looking to hire someone with a lot of experience. And I sort of threw my hat in the ring, not sure what he'd think of me. I mean, I had this like little entrepreneurial experience as a kid, did a little bit in college, was hungry and, and did some consulting work that was certainly relevant. But I basically just put my, my best foot forward talking to him and and proving to him that I was going to get unique access to tech opportunities that even folks in the industry probably wouldn't get. And that was going to come through hustle. That was going to come through being in the places where founders were, whether it's going to a bar or going to an accelerator program, you know, at all costs, flying to San Francisco, 
that was my MO. I wanted to be the hustler, the guy that was going to bring the best deals into our business. And I think he respected that. So, you know, competitive process, he, you know, didn't give me full insights into sort of everyone that was, you know, applying or, or that he interviewed, but I know that it was competitive and, you know, I was lucky to be the one chosen. It was a, definitely exciting at the time. Yeah, it sounds exciting. So when you when you first came on, what did you feel like was the most important piece of, you know, building the fund? What was the most important piece to get right first? And then how does that focus kind of changed as as uh, the firm has matured? Yeah, I mean, I think for us, the first thing to get right with sort of a lack of an early brand, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. One guy investing on his own, you need to build a track record and make good investments. So you know, goal one was get a little bit of capital in the door and, and similar to a startup, prove our concept, right? Um, you know, a fund just like a startup, you know, you need a track record to, to keep doing it successfully to raise that next round, just like a, you know, a series A startup probably needs series B to continue their growth. Fund one needs fund two to continue their growth. And you need to go out to LPs just like those folks need to go to VCs. Um, so, I was really tasked with trying to, you know, help us be better at everything from figuring out the fundraising process, creating, you know, really strong materials, but most importantly, it's making good investments and seeing good deals. So that was probably the, the most important thing to get right was just trying to, to see as much as we could and set up the process to, to get quality deal flow, but also track things that were too early because there are some stuff we'd meet where, really like the idea. It's two guys, you know, sort of operating from their apartment, but six months later, they could be that six person company that's just hitting a million dollar run rate and revenue and needs that seed investment. And, you know, I wanted to be sort of first to mind and, and in their heads when that moment came. So, so setting up our firm with appropriate tools and software to actually track investments and hit them up at the appropriate times was something that I spent a lot of time on. Um, so I would say, you know, setting us up for success, being able to see lots of deals and appropriately tracking them and reaching out to founders at the right time was sort of step one to, you know, get things right. Definitely. And one thing I think is interesting you mentioned was, you know, building your brand, especially being an early fund. Can you discuss that a little bit? Because I think that's obviously helpful, you know, not just for a fund, but for a startup and even an individual. So how did you approach that? Yeah, it's, it's so funny. I have this conversation with our team really frequently. I think there are, there are a number of approaches to brand building. And, you know, I, I constantly think about what makes the most sense for us and me and, and where we've landed is, you know, we'd rather be the best firm you've never heard of than be the guy who's tweeting all day about, you know, here's a thread on why I like this. And we're, we're thinking about e-commerce and here are the 10 things that we think are going to change the world. That hasn't really been our MO historically. Now I understand the value of being a known commodity. And I also battle with that because I think when you're a brand that is sort of globally known, you get a lot of crap, right? If everyone is emailing you and you're seeing, you know, 10,000 deals a month, your team is just overwhelmed with, you know, investment bankers hitting you up, trying to send you deals, founders who have no traction trying to send you deals. And I'd much rather have a little bit more of a narrow pipeline of highly qualified deals. So for me, I build relationships with the people that are doing the Twitter threads, right? 
who are getting all those deals, who maybe see 10,000, have narrowed it down to 100. And I'd rather see their 100 and, and share deal flow you know, more passively with folks like that. So that's, that's been our strategy. We want to be thought of as guys or, or, or team that is really smart, that is super value add to have around the table. And, and second, on sort of the brand part, most funds, their GPs, the people running those organizations, have never actually built businesses before. And I think what separates us is, you know, my partner, Andy, who started our fund, has started five businesses in the past and has experience on their side of the table and has experience raising money. And obviously is just an all around great person to work with. So I think that really separates us. Like literally having someone who's been there, done that, founders recognize it and want that kind of advisor. So if there's a competitive process and a few firms are gonna be involved in the deal, we don't get pushed out too often because a founder wants another entrepreneur to be their advisor. So I think that's really become our brand, you know, founders investing in founders, not trying to put out a million pieces of content. Um, there, there are a number of strategies to be successful. Content has worked for a lot of people, but it hasn't historically been our MO. Definitely. And I've, I've noticed a common thread when asking entrepreneurs what they look for in an investing partner. It, it's definitely more than just capital. It's someone who can bring that experience and bring uh, some intangibles to the uh, to the table. So I hear you there. Um, and speaking of the early stages of River Park Ventures, what were some of the, the pain points that you experienced that you might not have originally uh, anticipated? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we, I'll, I'll, I'll discuss this more personally first, as it relates to my role as an investor. The feedback cycles are incredibly long in our industry. So you could be, let's just say you're a 50-year-old guy who just started a venture capital fund or a 50-year-old woman. You know, that doesn't mean you're experienced, right? That doesn't mean you have a good track record. It takes five, 10 years many times for investments to be realized and for you to actually see and reflect, hey, you know, this was the fund. This is where we landed. These were our good investments. These were our bad investments. And this is our multiple on capital. This is what we made for ourselves. This is what we returned to LPs. It takes a lot of time to actually see that data. Now I'm starting to tap on four and a half, five years in the industry and, and you're able to see sort of small milestones, right? When you invest in a seed stage business that hits series A, that hits series B, those are like, you know, small little check marks that you could tip your cap to that are sort of milestone wins that you, you've achieved along the way. And occasionally, you know, you get, an investment you bet on at the seed that goes from zero to a home run in a really short period of time. You know, we have one recent example of that in a business called Thrasio, which is a, it's a acquirer of Amazon third-party sellers that we invested in, you know, in 2018 at a $6 million pre-money valuation and has quickly become a multi-billion dollar business. Um, but those are, you know, few and far between. And, and most folks, including myself, need to look at these small milestones of, you know, investments that we made, how quickly they got to Series A, if they got to Series A, B, et cetera, uh, in order to determine success. So, so that was a pain point, right? Like to, to understand that you're not going to be able to see in a year or two, if you're good at your job, is kind of scary. But um, you need to be patient and sort of understand that you just need to recognize the small milestones 
get your head down, even things like raising your next fund or writing a really good LP update, you know, those are the stuff that you point to as, as wins to, to sort of ease that pain. Um, so I would say, you know, that's, that's how I think about my role and some of the pain points. That's interesting. And I was reading up on Thrasio. I think that's a really interesting company. I, I didn't even know that that was a, a trend going on with consolidating third-party vendors on Amazon, but it, it definitely makes sense. And it seems like there's a lot of success with that. Yeah, appreciate it. It was, it was, they were the first player in that world institutionally. And it was a, at the time, a, a scary bet on little traction. But when you meet, you know, a founder like, like that, you, it's like, you, you know, when you know, and, and he was really special when he came into our office and pitched us, there were early little signs of success. And actually recently I pulled up their seed deck to see if they, you know, hit their numbers and they beat it by like tons. Right. And, and we never see that. Everyone shows us these hockey sticks where revenue is going from two to 10 to, to 30 and, and the business becomes a unicorn overnight, basically. And these guys like crush their projections. <laughs> so rare in our world. Um, but yes, that's, you know, like they call it a unicorn for a reason. They don't come by, you know, your desk that often. Yeah, definitely. Let's, uh, let's touch on that in terms of your investment thesis. Um, what's the main driving investment thesis for River Park Ventures? Yeah, I would say it starts with just really strong entrepreneurs. What we frequently see is the entrepreneur comes from the pain point that they're trying to solve. So, uh, I mean, I'll give you one example. Um, we have a business in our portfolio called Ordermark. And the founder, his, his family business is a restaurant called Cantor's Deli. Um, it's a huge LA-based deli that, you know, employs 50, 100 plus people. Um, and they were just starting to get into online ordering. They wanted to basically turn on all these third-party platforms because they saw that it was going to be a big part of their business. So they, they started to basically bring in, um, you know, these online ordering systems to, to their space. And what they noticed was every system you needed a separate like computing system. So a separate tablet where someone actually needed to stand over the tablets in the restaurant and basically accept the Grubhub order, accept the DoorDash order, accept the Postmates order. So if you think about it, this space, while there's a few big winners, like four, um, you know, it's still pretty fragmented, you know, in Indiana, we have B-Town menus that I think people still use. Um, there, there are a lot of B-Town menus out there. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of these places had eight, 10 tablets, and he basically created a software platform to allow you to accept orders from 10, 20 different systems. In fact, over 30 in one, in one unified tablet, one unified operating system. So stuff like that, where we meet a founder that says, I've been dealing with this crap my whole life. It's pen and paper. And we want to bring it online. You know, you frequently hear stories like that, but occasionally we have more thematic, um, you know, investment areas that we really like to focus on. I think, I think as of late, we, you know, call it the last two, three years, we've been really focused on this problem in e-commerce where brands are just spending too much money on marketing. And, and frankly, they're not able to really, like a brand can't really, or have trouble today raising venture capital. The days of, you know, your dollar shave clubs and, and those folks raising, you know, $3 million seeds and $10 million A's are, are virtually over. You know, there are some exceptions, 
but the modern day D2C e-commerce brand needs to be really scrappy and, and basically run a business close to cash flow break even and profitability because fundraising is going to be really challenging. So we wanted to find tools to make running a business like that much easier without, you know, as much reliance on expensive marketing tactics. So with that, we've made, you know, a number of investments. One is called Marketer Hire. It's a platform for you to basically onboard freelance marketing talent, specifically in the digital domain. So everything from, you know, email marketing to SEO and, and Facebook, um, even TikTok. If you wanted someone who's an expert in helping build your TikTok presence, you know, you could find someone through, through this platform. Um, another one that I'm super excited about is a business called Co-op Commerce, where you're a brand take, you know, let's just say away luggage as an example, because I think most people know it and you're at the checkout page. And after you make a purchase of an away bag, you might get a little widget that pops up and says, you know, customers like you who bought an away bag also bought this Everlane t-shirt and these APL sneakers and this pair of Mack Weldon underwear. Um, so making it really likely that you're going to convert to another brand, um, calling it sort of a co-op of brands who want to work together. You know, that's an area that we've really been excited about. So the thesis changes over time and, and changes pretty frequently. Um, but that's an area that we're really excited about right now. That's really interesting. Um, interesting thesis. And I think, you know, overall with what you were saying about finding management teams that are passionate and obsessed with the problem, definitely uh, agree with that. I That's one of the first questions I ask when I'm talking to founders is what's the problem? Why are you obsessed with it? Um, so I, I hear you there. Are there any, you know, on the other side of the coin, are there any red flags that might be automatic deal breakers whenever you're approached by a company? Yeah. I mean, I would say a red flag that gives me pause is when a business has raised a lot of money and doesn't have a lot of traction to show for it. And there's a lot of exceptions, of course, like a Tesla, right? They're not going to be able to build a business without hundreds of millions or billions of dollars in R and D. Uh, but generally in the stuff we invest in, you know, it's, it's typically software and it's a founder who raises money, builds a team, builds a product, gets early customers, and then goes to raise their next round. And what we sometimes see is founder raises money in that seed deck. They said they were going to launch in 2019. Here we are at the start of 2021. The product is ready to go. And, but they've been telling the story of product ready to go for two, three years. Um, that's a little scary, like the, the story of not really hitting deadlines um, or at least, you know, stuff that they've written about in a pitch deck. And we're pretty good at deciphering that because we, the community of investors is really small. And if businesses, business A raised a pre-seed round, we, it's very likely that we know someone at one of those pre-seed firms and we could sort of get insight on the story. You know, obviously they want to tell a story that's going to lead to their company getting another investment, but you know, that's why we get paid the big bucks, I guess, to decipher through that and, and figure out why this dollar didn't get them to this milestone. So a lot of, lot of dollars raised is, is, a, is a red flag. Mm -hmm. And once you're partnered with a company, how do you ensure that they are actually able to gain traction? I guess, what's your approach to really that partnership uh, relationship with the founders? I would say that one's, it, it totally depends. There are some businesses 
and someone, uh, another investor in my network actually wrote this whole, this whole article or blog on sort of like coaches versus, versus cheerleaders and, and where you stand as an investor. And I would say that sometimes uh, for us, we've seen success doing both, right? There are some founders that you bet on that maybe you know the space relatively well, but not great. And they're so sharp that they just go out, they took your capital, they like you, you're supporting them, they'll call you once a month and you could give advice and be helpful, but they're gonna build the business. Like that's why you place the bet. It's not on yourself to, to build it for them, it's the founder. That's why everyone says the founder is so important because you know, it takes a, it takes a smart investor to, to know and be smart enough to say that you're not building the business. I think a lot of investors get caught up in the fact that they're adding all this value, but in reality, it's the founders that are building. I think our superpower as investors has been really on the business development front, especially in this world that we're talking about of e-com enablement. We've we've met virtually, you know, any any New York-based consumer brand that's raising money, there's a good chance it came across my desk, and I would even expand that to to nationally. There are not a lot of consumer investors that are doing it institutionally. We see a lot of those players. And even when we pass, we try to be really cool about it. Like we give reasons why we're transparent in our communications. I think, you know, what's, what's incredibly important to us is, is, is our reputation. So we take the role of cheerleaders sometimes. Other times we take the role as really active advisors. There's a few companies in the portfolio that, that need our guidance that, Maybe they don't have another institutional investor early on in the business and could leverage our network of Series A investors and want to you know, speak to some of our advisors and LPs who are maybe experts in particular fields. Um, so you know, that's kind of where we play post-investment. We try to add as much value as possible. We're always available. I give founders my number to text me. Um, my partner, Andy, is, is always available as, as an advisor. Um, so it's it's really up to the company to to leverage us how they want. Definitely makes sense. Each company is different and needs different levels of uh, engagement. Kind of switching gears, uh, as I mentioned, really want to use this as a resource for uh, founders um, as they're going through the startup journey. So I wanted to ask you, what would be a piece of advice from your perspective for an entrepreneur who's going through the process of raising money for the first time? Totally. I I would say, and this is a this is a little cheesy, but us VCs, we see a lot of PowerPoint decks and PowerPoint decks are your first line of communication with the VC. Whether you like it or not, you get in touch with the VC. They say, hey, do you mind sharing a deck? Like before they even talk to you, before they even know your background, you could be, you know, Harvard MBA or you could have, you know, gotten your G- GD, you know, whatever from Atlanta, it doesn't matter. We want your PowerPoint deck. That's our first line of defense to see if we want to even meet you. Invest in that. Invest time. Go on Upwork or Fiverr or or a platform like Market or Hire and find someone to design it for you. Make it look pretty. Make the story compelling. Um, whether it's a pre-seed round or seed round with some traction, the deck is it's your first impression. So invest in the deck. It's, it's something we look at. It's not, it's not going to make us invest, but it's definitely going to help you get that first meeting. And, um, you know, that's, that's the hardest part sometimes is actually getting in the door. Mm -hmm, Definitely. And 
I guess from your perspective, when you're going through those decks, uh, like you said, you get a thousand coming in and you know, only you have only a certain amount of hours in the day. So how do you, I guess, um, use your time efficiently to evaluate those, those deals? Are you spending just, you know, two minutes flipping through and certain things might catch your eye? How are you looking through these decks? Yeah, I think there's a few strategies we take one, you know, at River Park, we've expanded our team a little bit recently. And, you know, we have another team member who's basically taken a lot of the responsibility of being our first line of defense on calls and, and, and fielding some of the decks. So he'll, you know, review pitch decks alongside me, which takes some timing off my plate and, and, and Andy's plate as well. And we've also built a pretty good network of, of experts. So no matter what I'm, or someone on my team is going to take a pass through that deck to understand what this business does, generally what space they're operating in. But let's say it's in payments, right? Like a consumer payments API that helps a brand, you know, taking credit cards. It's just some, you know, high level example. You know, we have a business called Bolt in our portfolio that's in that world. And we might ping the founder and say, hey, these guys are building a payments business, you know, looks interesting. Would you mind taking a look? And if, and if you like it, maybe taking a first call alongside us and letting us know what you think. So building out this expert diligence network is, you know, early on when I started, it was a big mission of mine. How could I make my life easier? How can I make Andy's life easier and, and make our diligence more efficient? And the best way to do that, and, and what I knew from consulting was, let's get experts into the mix, people that maybe know a space better than I do. So an early employee of Venmo probably knows more about payments than a guy who's been in VC for three years looking at, you know, a bunch of different businesses. Um, so really leveraging experts and, and sort of playing dumb in order to understand as much as possible has been really helpful to, to get us through the tons of deal flow that we're trying to evaluate and then, you know, cut it down to the stuff that we think really needs to be um, dug into and where we should be dedicating a lot of our time. Yeah, super interesting. So before we go on to something that I call the fast fives, what excites you most about River Park Ventures and the direction it's moving? Yeah, I mean, we're on our third fund now. Um, things are going really well. I'm really excited about the progress. I think it's going to be, you know, across our funds so far, I think they're going to be home runs and, and I'm pumped about that. I think what it comes down to is, is our team and, and a belief that, you know, together we are really powerful. We're going to be able to get into competitive deals. And, and what we've seen is, you know, that play out. I think, you know, when I, when I think about my relationship with my partner, Andy, I like to say I'm Andy Pettit. Like I'm going to start, I'll get the company in the door and he's Mariano Rivera. The guy is an amazing closer. And when you believe you have a Mariano Rivera behind you, there's a good chance you're going to win. Um, yeah. So I think that analogy really speaks to what I see in our firm and our ability to, to get into competitive deals because Lord knows the world is getting much more competitive right now, the amount of funds that are entering. Um, but we've gotten really good at you know, getting into these businesses that we think we could add value in and that we want to be a part of. Um, so I'm pumped for, for the next few years. I think the hump of getting from fund one to fund two is, is the hardest. And we're on fund three going on fund four. So we're not stopping. This is just the beginning. And I couldn't be more excited. 
yeah it's awesome and i'm excited to see the direction and the evolution of river park uh so now on to the fast five like i said these are just standard sets of questions so i'm interested to hear your your perspective and your take on them so starting with with number one what's the most important piece of advice you would give a fellow vc investor when i first started i wanted to meet everyone and build this massive network and what i realized really quickly was a core small group of people were the ones that I was seeing great deal flow with, I was bonding with, and it made me realize that, you know, sometimes a really great small circle is better than being Mr. Popular. I love the people that I work really closely with. We're not afraid to share ideas. We don't compete with each other. I mean, technically you could say you do, but in reality, like, if I like someone, I'm going to fight for them to be on the cap table alongside us as best I can. So, you know, someone joining the space, I would say, take a bunch of meetings, figure out who you like, you know, it's kind of like dating and really nurture those great relationships. And don't be afraid to, to let some go by the wayside. What's a tool that every VC investor should implement? If we're talking like a software tool, um, I would say, you know, I use this tool called Affinity. Um, maybe, you know, for the next podcast, they could sponsor it. Um, but those guys, you know, have built a really good software tool that's sort of like Salesforce for venture capital. And one of the things that I find challenging, and, and you alluded to it earlier, is just keeping up with my inbox. And they, they at the end of every day, send an alert. Hey, by the way, you haven't responded to these 14 messages from these 14 people. And it's allowed me to stay on task. And, you know, actually having people on your team who also sort of help you monitor that stuff, right? Like if you see a deal, you share it internally, you know, the team member reminds you to sort of respond to that person, dig in further. I think that's also helpful, but good software to make sure you're not missing things is hugely important and, and, and leads to a more organized process. What's, what's the most important KPI you track and why? Yeah, I mean, I think this is really different from, from business to business, but in consumer, what gets me most excited is organic sharing of a product or service. Um, the idea that we, we talked about this with customer acquisition costs going through the roof, the one way to you know, build a business without high acquisition is to build a product that pe- not only do people love, but they're pumped to share with their friends. So I love when I invest in a brand or product and I see friends of mine from like high school sharing it in the wild on their Instagram. Um, There's nothing more, I guess, um, not not a better proof point of product market fit than when people are not only buying a product, but but sharing the product with their network without getting any pay to do it. Um, So that's a little bit of like an intangible KPI, but you know, typically what we look at is a revenue trajectory. That's exciting when, when we're sort of vetting an idea, especially, you know, post-launch, the idea that they maybe started at 100K last year, got to a million this year, shows that they're able to sell. Um, people are, are, are buying the product. There might be customers you could talk to. So, so revenue is a pretty important KPI. Who's another VC investor that you view as a personal mentor? Okay, so this is interesting because I, early on, when I got into this world, I thought to myself, I need to meet these, you know, these older people that had been doing it for a really long time, who are going to have years of wisdom to, to lay down on me. And 
honestly, like I took a meeting and, and sometimes tried following up with those people and they're all like busy and, and it's, it's hard to get someone who's some of these more senior people just kind of do their thing and they want to talk to other senior people. And it's, it is rare that you meet one that says, you know, you know, young guy, I want to sort of take a liking in in you and we're going to do lunch every quarter. Um, So what I've actually found to be most exciting in terms of mentorship is peer mentorship, because those young people that similar to you are growing super quickly in this world, whether they're, you know, under 30 and a principal or partner at their fund, you know, they've seen five years of a cycle. I think the younger people are more in tune with trends. Um, so you're actually learning, you know, a bit more from some of those people. Um, so I'm not going to give you individual names, but there's a core few, four or five people who I regularly exchange ideas with and who I run, you know, life events with who have given me really good feedback over, over time. Obviously my partner, Andy, you know, he, he's been my mentor from day one. I think, I think this is a world where, you know, every job application that goes on LinkedIn gets 5,000 applicants. It's super competitive. And, and this guy believed in me and, and I'll be forever, forever grateful for that. So um, he's definitely my mentor, but obviously, you know, him being at the firm, it's a little bit of a cheap answer. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a really interesting approach. Um, and then lastly, pitch River Park Ventures in 30 seconds. We are a VC fund that's run by entrepreneurs. Like I mentioned to you earlier, but I would tell this to uh, someone who is potentially taking our money. You know, it's rare that you are actually backed by a place where the people that run the organization have built businesses before, have raised money before, have, have taken something to exit. And, and with us, you have that. And we've invested in winners, right? We have a really great track record. We have a portfolio of, of 80 businesses and our LPs are some of the most accomplished people really in the world. And we could provide you with that access. And I think that's, you know, even from a larger fund who's got large institutional money behind them, they don't have, you know, 50 to 75 of the most accomplished business leaders in the world on their on their investment cap table. And, and we give access to those types of people. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Well, that's everything I have for you. Again, I really appreciate you coming on. I think that there's been a ton of valuable stuff discussed that a lot of people will, um, will really enjoy to listen to. So again, I really thank you for coming on. Thanks, Stephen. This was tons of fun. I, I don't do these too often, but it, it was fun to talk to you, especially given the relationship we've built over the past few months. Um, excited for it to come out. Thanks everyone for tuning in to today's episode. Hope you enjoyed meeting Spencer and hearing about his story. If you liked the episode, make sure to subscribe to stay on top of the latest episodes. Thanks again, and I look forward to bring you along the next Fireside Chat.